Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. It'd be good to talk a little bit about some of the lessons that NATO has learned in Ukraine, or they should have learned. Um, I guess the biggest one is how to train all the Ukrainians that needed to be put into the line. Uh, NATO has been involved in that. The U.S. has been involved in that. Uh, what have they learned? Well, they learned that they needed some more preparation. I mean, for example, one of the other lessons they learned was that they're going to have a, uh, a fast reaction force. Uh, it shouldn't be, you know, 40,000 men, which is what they currently have. It should be a lot more, not just for fighting, but for training, because a lot of the training of the Ukrainians is taking part, you know, in Poland and other uh, NATO states that are bordering uh, Ukraine. You know, bringing on 100,000 uh, new troops is a huge effort. I mean, what do you do to to um, train that many people in that fast a time? Well, actually, it's been going on for quite a while. Uh, from the beginning, uh, there was a training, specialist training provided, uh, especially by Britain, uh, which which set up a training program in Britain where they could turn basically, uh, you know, I think it was twelve thousand, uh, you know, troops in uh, in about you know ten weeks. Uh, they've expanded that and basically uh, incorporated a lot of Ukrainian instructors. In other words, the more Ukrainians you train, the more Ukrainians you have available to assist in that training. In other words, it eliminates the, uh, you know, the language problem. Uh, a lot of Ukrainians speak English or some English, uh, but they all speak Ukrainian. Um, so the, uh, the training is, is moving ahead. The Ukrainians realize that they can't carry out an offensive unless they have trained troops. Uh, the, you know, Ukrainian soldiers <laughs> are observant and they notice one reason the Russians are losing so many is that a lot of the Russian troops are simply not trained as opposed to having no uh, energy, so to speak, or willingness to be there. Now, there's been a lot of uh, weapons used there in Ukraine. Has NATO learned anything new about the uh, weapon types that they should be using in an effort against a uh, Russian-type enemy? Well, yeah, that's been a very important uh, advantage, so to speak, or benefit for NATO. Uh, they basically sent, even before the invasion, I mean, they saw it coming. The Ukrainians warned them. They said, look, you know, the Russians are coming. And uh, starting in, in late uh, 2021, the weapons began flowing in. Now, the Ukrainians have been preparing for this since 2014. That's when they realized they couldn't depend on guarantees, uh, like one made in the 1990s where Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in return for a, a, a agreement where Russia would never attack Ukraine. Well, that went by the by. Um, and uh, they have uh, tried a lot of weapons, and uh, NATO found out which ones work, which ones work best, um, and which ones are worth, uh, you know, creating more of. 
uh, that brought out another problem in that NATO had not prepared for a wartime situation uh, where they had to basically replace a lot of weapons and do it quickly. Uh, so that was an extremely valuable lesson that they're still digesting. Yeah, how are the weapons being replaced right now? Because there's been a lot of weapons used, especially anti-tank missiles like that there in Ukraine. Well, the problem is that was something NATO had ignored. We knew from the 1973 Arab-Israeli war that modern warfare would basically burn up ammunition and high-tech weapons much faster than we expected. And ever since then, governments have been fighting against taking the obvious solution, you know, developing peacetime, larger peacetime reserves of these weapons, uh, developing, spending money on developing the uh, defense industrial base. In other words, the, the factory capacity that would be idle in peacetime, but could be quickly spun up to uh, uh, produce the weapons. This is the typical false economy of peacetime operations. You, you, you know, buried in your archive, you have this, these truths, uh, but the reality is you have to get appropriations through Congress every year, and they have much shorter memories. Is the supply keeping up with the demand right now, or are the Ukrainians asking for more stuff and it's just not there? Well, what the Ukrainians are doing, and they're very clever about this, they don't need the anti-tank weapons as much as they used to, because those were the key to stopping the initial Russian invasion, especially in, in northern Ukraine, where they tried to uh, grab the capital, Kiev, quickly. Uh, they still use a lot of these weapons, but they've shifted to other weapons. For example, the HIMARS, uh, which fires the uh, uh, guided uh, MLRS rocket, the guided rockets, basically. Uh, these the Ukrainians found uh, really important for their offensive operations, mainly because they had a lot of people inside the Russian-occupied territories who would report regularly where the Russians were keeping their supply depots, where the headquarters were. And that's why they've been so very effective uh, with the with the HIMARS rockets, uh, is they have a, a, a steady supply of uh, accurate you know, target locations. And they just take these out. And this has proven devastating for the Russians. Uh, they still haven't got a lot of reliable troops, but now they find out they can't even keep their supplies going. They can't uh, resupply their artillery. Uh, they keep losing, uh, you know, uh, senior officers because the headquarters keep getting hit. Um, it, it's really been a, a a basically unsung victory for the Ukrainians. They have basically gone over to weapons they could get more of. And indeed, the United States and Britain have been sending more of their high Mars. I think even uh, I think Poland. Somebody else sent some of the old trap ones, which have twice as many HIMARS rockets on them. Uh, so uh, these have, have been another weapon system, which NATO was learning how to effectively use in wartime. Uh, it had never been used uh, for a near-peer opponent. In other words, somebody who has similar capabilities. Uh, the HIMARS was very uh, effective in Afghanistan um, and later in Iraq and Syria. Uh, but, you know, now they're up against, you know, a, a, how should I put it, an enemy who should be able to, uh, you know, fight back. 
and the Ukrainians have showed how you can use HIMARS to basically disarm the enemy and get and, and allow an offensive moving forward, which depends on a lot fewer troops and armored vehicles. Um, and uh, that's classic art, uh, use of artillery, using it to basically destroy the enemy, and then you just march your your, your troops over uh, over them and and keep moving. Very clever. What about UAVs? How have those worked out? And I had heard that the UAVs had been running out for the Ukraines because they had been effectively stopped by the Russians. Uh, they've had attrition losses, but you got to remember the Ukrainians were building UAVs, uh, you know, before the war. We sent them more. Uh, several NATO nations sent them more UAVs, and they're still getting more. Uh, the Russians have been receiving that. The Russians never had many UAVs to begin with. That was something the Russians were always behind in. Uh, before they got sanctioned uh, from, from uh, so heavily, they were depending upon Israel uh, to uh, show them the tech. Uh, and they they still do produce some of the uh, some you uh, some uh, Israeli designs under license, uh, but once the uh, once the Russians started you know attacking all their neighbors, the Israelis you know cut that off, and um, and they they uh, Russians obtained a lot of uh, uh, UAVs from Iran, but these proved to be less <laughs> as useful as advertised. There were a lot of duds. Uh, you know they they broke down quickly. Uh, in other words, like a lot of Iranian weapons, they look good on paper, uh, but if you use them in a, in a near peer war, as it were, they couldn't take it. So the Ukrainians have not been losing so many UAVs that they still don't do, still don't uh, use them effectively, um, because one of, the, one of the major uses of the UAVs is to find uh, targets that can attack UAVs. You know, any aircraft systems, uh, you know, both artillery and missile. Um, and uh, these have become a primary targets, not just, you know, uh, for UAVs, uh, which are not used as weapons themselves, uh, but to provide uh, targets uh, for the HIMARS rockets. So again, the Ukrainians have been quick to come up with solutions, and they've been quicker than the Russians have. What's the most interesting solution that you've heard about so far? Uh, letting Ukraine join NATO. Uh, this was <laughs> this was something that this is the Russians blame the whole situation on NATO expanding. Uh, they make a, a very litigious case that we promised them we wouldn't. Blah blah blah. What they lose sight of the fact, and a lot of the people who go along with the Russian arguments lose sight of the fact that the main reason so many Eastern European countries joined NATO after in the 1990s and and up until and currently, uh, you know, Finland and Sweden are doing it, uh, is for mutual protection against Russian aggression. And the Russians are saying, oh, no, we're just protecting ourselves from from uh, Nazis uh, as the Russians behave like Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, they, they they don't have much of a sense of irony. Um, and uh, that is still Ukraine realizes now, you know, they've they've applied for membership in the European Union. That's an economic deal, I think. Uh, but they've also uh, made clear that. They're no longer going to compromise, as Russia has insisted they do, to not join NATO 
it's absolutely essential that they join NATO. So if the Russians try it again, and that means the Ukrainians are going to drive them out this time, uh, no matter how long it takes, no matter what the cost, uh, if they come back again, they're going to be invading a NATO country. And that's going to bring a whole lot of hurt down on the Russians a whole lot quicker. Uh, so, you know, that, again, is something that a lot of people missed. Uh, the uh, Eastern European countries saw the Russian threat a lot sooner uh, than, you know, the, what the, the, the original NATO members, the Western Europeans, uh, because they've been living with it for centuries. You know, the Russians just keep on coming. They'll find an excuse that, oh, no, no. Uh, Eastern Poland belongs to us, or no, this part of Romania belongs to us. Um, nothing like a powerful defensive organization uh, to cure Russia of those uh, uh, those ambitions. And uh, NATO, uh, Ukraine, for a long time didn't didn't believe they had to have it. Sure, we'll appease the Russians; we won't join NATO. Now they see it as an absolute necessity. They, like other Eastern European countries have been victims of uh, continuous Russian aggression for centuries. Uh, this is nothing new. We tend to, you know, in the West, we tend to forget, oh, the Russians, yeah, they're, they're different now. Right. Uh, but they're still updating. What about the use of Western forces inside Ukraine? Has anything been going on there? No. Well, we've been scrupulous about uh, keeping our active duty forces out. Now, there are a lot of, you know, former military volunteers. In fact, there are even, there are so many uh, Ukrainians living, uh, you know, outside the country, expatriate Ukrainians, uh, that they formed several battalions. And they proudly wear patches. You know, hey, we're, you know, we're Ukrainians from Canada or whatever. Um, and they, the Russians really can't complain about that. Um, but there's also hundreds of uh former special forces uh, from from all countries, mainly, you know, Britain and the United States. And they basically go over on their own nickel. Um, and the Ukrainians, at first, they, they used them for combat, but then they realized these guys are a lot more valuable as trainers. Uh, because during that, you know, after 2014, we had a lot of special forces in there. Uh, there was the special forces group that had originally designed uh, to support uh, operations in Eastern Europe. <laughs> so these guys were finally in their heyday. You know, they've been doing secondary duty in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and what have you for years. But now they were doing what they've been trained for. And uh, they impressed the, uh, the Ukrainians quite a bit. So uh, when they, they had to leave, uh, let, let's Russia's have an excuse for, you know, see, there's NATO troops there. Uh, there were plenty of retired, uh, you know, uh, special forces and what have you, uh, who were welcomed and, and put to work. Uh, in some cases, they were even given some stipends, you know, just living expenses and what have you, um, because the Ukrainians really appreciated what they could do for them. Um, and these guys helped us train the Ukrainian special forces, who were already quite experienced. They were a decisive uh, group uh, during the uh, 2014 operation in Donbass that stopped the Russian, you know, advance, and held it ever since. Um, so they were they were they were happy to get uh, NATO assistance in expanding their numbers uh, from these you know these retired you know veterans. 
And uh, that has proved to be a key aspect of the uh, civilian partisan movement, the civilian resistance inside the occupied territories, which, again, the Ukrainians have exploited you know, very effectively. I heard that there have even been uh, Belarusians that have gone into Ukraine and have been helping out, even yes. though Belarus is <laughs> technically on Russia's uh, side at this point. Well, no, the Belarusian dictator is on Russia's side. Uh, at the time of the invasion, uh, Russia had sent in a contingent of, uh, for training purposes of Russian troops uh, to uh, support the uh, Belarusian president who had won another crooked election. In other words, he started out as a Democrat, uh, but he went bad. He started rigging elections and what have you. And he was facing more and more popular resistance. And the Russians basically, you know, saved him. Now, the Russians quickly discovered that, that there's only so far they can go with this. Uh, they tried to uh, convince the Belarusians to send troops into Ukraine, but you know the guy, their man there said, no, 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 that's going to get us all killed. Um, and at the same time, uh, it was basically you know uh, an open secret that Belarusians were sabotaging uh, the railroad uh, lines going into uh, Ukraine that were a major support element uh, for the initial invasion in, in northern Ukraine. And ever since, there's basically been a uh, a internal resistance in Belarus, you know, supporting Ukraine, because they realize if once if once the Russians are are pushed out of Ukraine, uh, you know, there's going to be how should I put it, uh, a tendency to help the Belarusians, you know, push their Putin out uh, of uh, Belarusia, and that's something that's long overdue. Uh, that'll be real interesting to see that happen. How long before Russia just doesn't have the wherewithal to continue uh, this effort to take the territory there in um, Ukraine? Well, they've already lost the initiative. Uh, we regularly report on their uh, their manpower issues. And, and they're basically combing the prisons, uh, <coughs> taking taking anybody with a pulse, really, no matter what their age, no matter what their physical condition. Uh, and they're sending these guys into the into the front. Now they've gotten they've gotten a, a couple hundred of these fellows who were you know had some training, had some promise. They gave them modern weapons. Uh, you know, modern tanks, you know, the, the latest models and what have you. And they've been using these as an offensive force, but there's not enough of them. I mean, that's all they've got. And and the Ukrainians have no trouble piling on these guys, you know, with the high Mars, uh, with, with, with whatever weapons they have. So the Russians basically have no offensive capability. Um, they uh, and they and they're and they're losing their defensive capability. As the Ukrainians get more efficient, as they have more trained soldiers uh, going on the offensive, uh, the Russians have a harder and harder time stopping them. Stopping them. They're already being pushed back, and you can you can tell how bad it is because in a number of of Russian uh, you know citizens living in the occupied territories, you know, as administrators and advisors or whatever, uh, they are just leaving. Um, and uh, and those who aren't leaving, you know, tend to be under under uh, uh, mortal threat. 
um, indeed in Donbass, a lot of the uh, the Ukrainian uh, collaborators uh, realized that uh, they might not be too welcome in a in a you know a, a, a Ukrainian Ukraine, and so they're going to Russia. Uh, which is not some place they they prefer to go, but it's either that or face something worse. So the um, the offensive the defensive capabilities of the Russians are steadily declining as the Ukrainians get better. Uh, the Ukrainians are taking their time; they're not rushing it. Uh, they've always taken fewer casualties than the uh, than the uh, the Russians, and they want to keep it that way. But whether it involves fighting through the winter. Uh, which is pretty brutal, but more brutal for the for the side that hasn't got much morale to begin with. Um, they're going to keep at it, you know, until you know the Russians roll out. Meantime, back in Russia, uh, there's whispering about, well, what about what about Putin? Who's going to replace Putin? Now, technically, that's a uh, that's a capital offense, even discussing that, but it's being discussed anyway, because a lot more a lot more Russians, uh, you know. Uh, Wealthy Russians, powerful Russians, are realizing that you know they they basically uh, you know uh, jumped on a burning ship, you know, with Putin, and uh, and you know in order to you know uh, rescue Russia, they've got to basically do something about Putin. But you know that's uh, that's their problem. You reminded me of something that this effort started in the uh, spring. And the winter is now coming. How is that going to affect things? Well, it's going to be worse for the people on the defense. Uh, the Ukrainians, uh, they have morale. They have uh, basically um, a friendly population in the, in the territories they're attacking. Uh, they're more prepared for it. You know, they can get winter clothing, uh, food supplies, and what have you from NATO. Uh, NATO realizes that the Ukrainians have been very clever in their tactics and in their requests. And, uh, and you know, although it's brutal uh, in winter fighting, uh, the side that's better prepared for it is going to have an easier time of it. And that's not the Russians. So let's wrap things up by talking about the Russian weapon systems and what NATO has learned about them. Uh, they're as bad as they thought they were, as as NATO, as NATO thought they were. Uh, this was something we learned during the uh, Cold War. Um, whenever the uh, the Russian, you know, they supplied the Arab states, they supplied, uh, well, Iran. They supplied a lot of countries with weapons, and um, they uh, they always lost. Now they were always on the losing side. Now they would they would complain. Well, it's those Arab operators. They don't know how to use this stuff. But the Israelis said, stated point blank early on. He says, "Look, we could switch weapons. We could take the weapons, the new weapons the 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 Arabs have, and we can give them our weapons, and we still win, because it isn't the weapons; it's the people operating them." And the Russians never seemed to, you know, uh, realize how important that was. But it became obvious during the Iraq War. Uh, you know, first the uh, the liberation of uh, of uh, Kuwait, and then the uh, 2003 invasion. Uh, the Russian weapons were simply no match. Uh, now, since the uh, since the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, since all these wars were over, the Russians have tried to uh, improve their weapons. They haven't been all that successful, 
and that has basically been proven again um, in Ukraine. Uh, the Russians have fewer capabilities now because the sanctions have hurt their weapons production capabilities a lot. They didn't realize how much they depended upon key electronic elements, you know, for their smart weapons. Um, and it became ob- painfully obvious, you know, when they uh, when they ran through a lot of their missile supplies and what have you, and, and couldn't generate uh, sufficient replacements. Now they they tried, you know, they, they that's why they became allies with Iran because Iran is a past master of uh, smuggling, and they they've obtained some electronic elements. Uh, you know, for the the Russian weapons manufacturers, but not nearly enough. So the Russians are in bad shape, and it's not getting any better because of the sanctions and because of the number of uh, weapons they do have that they they've used up. They've used up most of their missiles, and even the even the guided missiles and what have you. I'll, 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 how should I put it? A higher proportion of them are duds uh, than with Western models. Now that's always been the case. Uh, you know, that's something we took for granted during the Cold War, uh, even with their ICBMs. But, you know, they were they were aiming enough of them at us that enough of them would work to, you know, basically destroy the world. So they can't do that in Ukraine. Uh, they're basically leaving behind a lot of, you know, uh, misfires, as it were. Uh, you know, a lot of people in Ukraine go out into their into their neighborhood and see a uh, and see a, uh, a Russian missile buried in the ground. That didn't go off because, thank God, the Russians can't build this stuff. Their armor has proven very ineffective. Isn't that true? That's something else the Russians didn't realize until they were up against a near-peer opponent. The Russians, in the 1960s, they introduced the um, autoloader, which eliminated uh, one of the four crewmen. The trouble with the autoloader was that it put a lot of live rounds you know, 20 or more, in the turret. Well, normally in, in Western tanks or in their older tanks, you'd only have a couple of rounds. So if there was a penetration of the hull that set off, you know, ammunition inside, if one or two rounds, you know, hey, you know, the, you, the tank could survive that. But a dozen or more rounds, uh, stored rounds going up, poof, it was all over. So that's why a lot of people notice <clears throat> destroyed Russian tanks the turrets were blown off, either blown up or just blown, uh, blown up or just blown clear off the tank. Uh, it was total destruction instead of partial destruction. I mean, up until the 1960s, uh, you know, most the, most of the crew would survive a tank being hit and disabled. Uh, but with this new improved, you know, autoloader, they didn't realize this for decades. But when it finally they finally got into a war where the enemy was taking advantage of this. Uh, and they finally, well, it was too late. Uh, this does not work. In fact, what they did uh, recently was they still had some of the old uh, T-66, no, T-64As, which didn't have the autoloader. The the uh, T-66 got the autoloader, uh, you know, about five or six years later in the 60s. They still had some of these in storage, and they brought them in. Because they, yeah, they were safer for the troops to operate, even if you had to train a human to load the, you know, the, uh, the, the 115 millimeter cannon. So even the Russians became aware of this as a liability, and there's not a whole lot they can do about it. They had developed, you know, active protection systems and what have you, but they never got them to work. 
again, the Russians can develop some great theoretical uh, systems, uh, but you know, leave it to the Israelis or the Americans or the Germans to make it work. Well, we'll leave it there and uh, till next time. Take care now. Happy Bye. Happy Labor Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Bye.